Hello, I'm Jennifer Kloster and today we're in the book cave with David McCooey. David, welcome to the book cave. Hi Jen, thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you here. It's lovely to be here. So David McCooey is a prize-winning poet, critic and editor, a musician and a sound artist. Fabulous to have such a talented person in the book cave today. But today I'm really keen to focus on your poetry, Mm -hmm. which is uh, wonderful, I have to say. Thank you. I've really enjoyed reading uh, three of your four uh, anthologies, and um, I'm hoping you're going to tell us lots about them and about poetry in general. To start off, um, you actually um, were the deputy editor for the Macquarie Pen Anthology of Australian Literature in 2009. Mm. So I'd like to know a little bit about that. Perhaps you could tell us about PEN, first of all. Uh, PEN is an international organisation, um, Poets, SS, Novelists, that stands for, and it's a, I guess it's a kind of humanitarian organisation. It, um, it does things like, uh, um, tries to uh, support writers that have been, um, who have been, uh, placed in prison by repressive mm. regimes, things like that. Yep. Um, and Penn um, and uh, Macquarie University got together because around the middle of um, the the noughties, uh, there was some discussion in Australian literary circles as to um, the amount of literary uh, of Australian literature that had gone out of print. You know, the, from Patrick White down, it was, you know, kind of seemed to be difficult to get even classic texts in right. Australia in, in, in print. Um, so um, Nick Jose and Mary Canane, um, Nick Jose is a, is a well-known uh, novelist and memoirist, and Mary Canane, who's a literary agent, got together and they basically started it. I came on board fairly soon after... Um, as one of the section editors, and then I became the deputy general editor. And Nick basically put together a a team of uh, section editors, so looking at certain slices of of time. Um, And we applied for money. Uh, We got a a grant from the Australia Council and all sorts of other places. As you can imagine, it's not Mm. a cheap enterprise to put together a a big... um, anthology of Australian literature that really covers from the earliest times to to then, basically. Um, so are these critical essays or are these actually like a like a dictionary of, like a biography? No, they were, they the were actual... examples of Australian literature. Okay. So, so with um, excerpts from e- Excerpts White from longer or... books or yeah. whole poems. Oh, great. Um, essays, short stories. We had a few excerpts from plays. Plays seemed to be, um, luckily that wasn't the thing I had to worry about, but they <laughs> seemed to be more problematic. Um, and we tried to be as inclusive as, as mm. inclusive as possible. There was a considerable um, proportion of uh, Indigenous writers in there, and that caused something of a controversy in oh. the media when the anthology came out in 2009. Peter Craven, a well-known Australian critic, believed that there was too much oh. Indigenous content. Um, I think Clive James may have uh, said that as he was launching the book in, in London, um, which was, <laughs> I thought really poor form on his behalf. How interesting. Um, okay. And, in fact, the then Deputy Prime Minister Julia Gillard came out in support of the anthology. Uh, she launched it in Washington, I think. So it was a, it was a okay. big deal. Yeah, yeah, out. absolutely. Um, it was, as well as trying to keep Australian uh, writing in print and, and introducing it to... 
um, a wider audience. It was um, also published internationally by Norton, and they do the the classic, you know, the Norton anthologies of yes, such yes, and such. Yeah. Um, it was published as the Literature of Australia uh, internationally, um, but locally it was also published as a kind of school resource. So yeah. we hoped that schools would put it on their syllabus and. Um, and about heightening yes. people's awareness that we do actually have exactly a canon right. of Australian yeah. literature with yeah. very distinctive Australian voices. Yes. Yeah. I think it's absolutely fantastic. So, okay, so you did that and then we've, we move into poetry. You've obviously been writing poetry for quite some time. but Too long. But what is it about poetry that, that draws you? Uh, it's short. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not always. I don't know. No, that's true. What is it about poetry? That's a really good question. Um <laughs> I can't write prose fiction. <laughs> I have tried and it never seems to really work. Poetry seems to suit me because, um, well, actually, without being flippant, I think the scale is an issue. I mean, apart mm. from having written a few longish poems, um, I mean, I've certainly never written a book length poem. Um, so my poems tend to be, you know, short, one page type of classic sort of lyric poem size poems. But I suspect that doesn't necessarily mean they're quick to write. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Ridiculously slow to write, actually. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, as, as with anything, really, um, but particularly something like poetry, uh, you get sort of 90% of the work done in, in the first 10% of the time and the last 10% of the work takes 90% of the time. Okay, so what makes a poem? Oh, that's a very good question. Because um, even across your works, um, there are lo- – many different forms mm. of the poem. Mm. So you've got your sort of classic poetry formed in stanzas or verses. Then you've obviously got your free prose, um, not much punctuation, sort of column form. And then you've got haikus, you know, um, a few one-liners, mm. um, you know, the longer form mm. with, you know, two-line stanzas. Um, and then you've just got, a poem, I suppose. So mm. what makes a poem a poem? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and being an academic in literary studies, I mm. probably should be able to answer that question. <laughs> um, Not necessarily. But, well, I mean, I think the point you've made is, is, is an excellent one, which is that poetry is incredibly various um, and it has an, an extraordinarily long history. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, of course... Even what is a poem is, is is up for debate. So, for instance, you know, if you if you look at, for instance, um, say, indigenous uh, song, if you translate that and, and and or publish that and say this is poetry, that 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 is potentially putting it into a different kind of cultural understanding, and and certainly a different cultural uh, context from mm. which it is originally used. Yes. Um, so, is it poetry or not? Possibly, but within within let's call it you know Western civilization or culture, um, you know it, it still has a, an incredibly long uh, history. Um, I think the thing that's exciting about poetry actually is its variety. The fact that it can be anything from you know bush verse to uh, experimental um, 
you know, kind of cut up bits of language yeah. to anything. But I think, I suppose, ultimately, it's really playing with language, isn't it? And it plays with language perhaps in a more intense way than, say, prose fiction does. Although, of course, you know, there are endless numbers of examples where, you know, people have used the novel form to, to do just that as well, of course. so That's true. I Would I be right in sort of saying that perhaps poetry, you have to be... Uh, cleverer with your use of the words or in your choice of the words because, in fact, you are you have fewer words mm. um, when compared with, say, a prose novel on the whole, mm. um, that, that poetry is really about finding the exactly right word for the purpose yes. of the poem. Is that I is think that that's right? a great way of looking at it. Uh, we're talking about lyric poetry. I mean, of course, mm. there is... There is dramatic poetry, so Shakespeare, mm. you know, he wrote in almost all his, almost all of his plays are, all of his plays are written in verse, almost all of them are in verse. Does that make sense? I don't know why, yeah, yeah. why that was so difficult to say. Um, Which doesn't necessarily mean they rhyme. No, that's no, right. No, no, no. Not, they, so they're in most verse, of them don't rhyme. No. They're, they're in so-called blank verse, which yeah. is to say they're, they're poetry without rhyme. Um, so that's a very different kind and much more capacious, although, of course, still incredibly um, original and playful. And then you have narrative verse. So, And, and really, poetry can be seen in, in European history. Sort of the decline of poetry can be seen around the early 19th century when um, uh, Walter Scott gives up writing narrative verse and starts writing novels. And the novel takes over where narrative verse. Oh, had really, okay. I'd never you know, understood that, that place. Right. So there's a real sort of transition. Mm. So yeah. were people reading poetry in much larger numbers uh, prior? Yes, I think you could say they were. Um, although, I mean, the novel, of course, has a has a longer history than you know the early nineteenth century. Oh, yes. But, but I think I think you could say they were. But still, um, I mean, th- this is an interesting question about poetry. Today is is it's it's supposed cultural marginality or or at mm, least its mm, minority mm. status. It's not something which um, you know has massive a massive popular following for the most part. Um, people often point to thing developments like you know poetry slams and, mm-hmm. and rap, mm-hmm. and I think that's perfectly legitimate. Though I think um, there are also legitimate arguments about the difference between. Uh, printed poetry and performed poetry and lyrics, song lyrics, and, you know, they're all slightly different, I think. Which brings us to the Bob Dylan Nobel mm. Prize for Literature yes. for song lyrics. Well, yes. I mean, they didn't say explicitly because he has written other... He wrote a kind of novel and he's written a memoir. But, yes, presumably it was for his lyrics. And and some people were happy with that and some people weren't. And uh, I thought it was an interesting decision. I didn't have a particularly strong position on on that i thought it was interesting that they chose um someone of that generation um Mm. uh, i think he certainly has uh, a terrific body of work behind him i i think you know if you look at the classic era for for bob dylan you know around the mid 60s the highway 61 revisited blonde on blonde era they are absolutely mind-blowingly marvelous lyrics but are they poetry? Well, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Possibly. I love that okay, but Seamus Heaney also won the Nobel Prize for Literature for, for his poetry, mm-hmm. I assume. Mm-hmm. So he talks about poetry as making an order. And for both 
being itself and for being a help. Hmm. What do you think he meant? Well, I think possibly he's talking about that endless tension between poetry as as a kind of thing in itself, just as almost like pure uh, abstraction, like an abstract artwork or a piece of music, okay. um, which is about form and, and order and the play of things, whether that's language or paint or sound. Um, but poetry has that added um, complexity of, of using language. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> and we use language for other things in a way that we don't, potentially use you know, music or whatever. Um, so so then there's the issue of, you know, the, the so-called message or the meaning of the poem and, mm. and, and whether a poem should um, have a kind of instrumental value, which is to say that it can get things done, it can make things change in the world, that it has political import. Um, and, and obviously for someone like Heaney, um, you know, uh, writing in the Irish context um, mm. where they had the troubles for, for so so long, um, there would have been an enormous pressure for a poet who was increasingly seen as a kind of national poet to make some sort of comment and intervention in the actual politics of the day. Okay. Um, but I think when he says help, I think what he may possibly means there, I don't know the context of, the, of that comment, um, is that... Um, Poetry, like any kind of cultural formation, is in large part also, and this is where the reader obviously comes in, <clears> about <throat> intensity, about emotion, about affect, about a fe about feeling things, um, about having an experience which you, you can't have with anything else. Um, I mean, it might be a bit like going for a walk in, you know, a national park or something, but it's not the same. It's its a, its, oh. its own kind of experience. Which leads us to your poetry <clears throat> um, specifically, I think. And you've, you've, I have three of your anthologies here, so all of which I really enjoyed, graphic, okay. um, which has a, a wonderful sort of uh, Stanley Kubrick retrospective. Can I call it that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it actually has poems about 2001 A Space Odyssey, Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket, mm. A Clockwork Orange. I actually found that poem quite disturbing as you must have found A Clockwork Orange disturbing. Yes. In its, yes. But, but the poem very cleverly, I think, traces your journey over many years with that particular film. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I, th I think it's called A Personal History of A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Um, and I suppose in part, I mean, it, it is part of a bigger sequence, as you say, about the films of Stanley Kubrick, Um mainly because I just went through, a, you know, a stage of, as, as people do, you know, of watching his films and, but also being struck by them. And, mm. and I guess the thing about artwork um, is that they, is that you can have a very long relationship with them. So for me, it began with that particular film um, in the early seventies when I was a child and the film came out in 71. I remember, you know, being sort of, sort of fascinated by the, because, because in those days, all, all you saw really was, was the advertisements in the back of the newspaper yes, for, yes. for movies. With that extraordinary um, picture. Yes. With the, yes. With the hat and the That's eye right. and the yeah. triangle. Exactly. Very intriguing, it, I think. Yes. And, and then it was parodied in Mad Magazine. And oh. As I say in the poem, my brother used to collect Mad Magazines and he'd 
make me pay to read one of his magazines. <laughs> and and I read I remember reading that story and I was reading I was reading this parody in a comic about a film I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. Um so I had this sort of relationship with the movie for years that I'd never seen. And then I as a teenager saw it with a bunch of older people I was hanging around with at the time. Um and so the film whilst it was um clearly uh interesting from filmic uh, a filmic point mm. of view it also had a place in the wider culture which i think was seen through the kind of relationship that i as an individual had with it i mean it was a very it was a very um i mean it is a disturbing film mm. as well as a very stylish one and at the time i think it raised all sorts of issues about you know violent the portrayal of violence in in film and so mm. forth and mm. in fact uh for many years it was never shown in the UK because um, uh, Kubrick, or I think his family, was was basically um, threatened over it, and, and he oh. just told um, the uh, the studio just don't show it. And so, oh, I didn't so know that. How mm. interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, your poem does a great job of uh, conveying mm-hmm. a lot of the different your different reactions to the film, which I think is kind of a, gives it a universality, perhaps. So you also have a, a poem in here about the whaling station at Shane in Albany, and I mm. found that very um, visceral, mm. you know, so very effective. So it's that, it's that use of words, and um, we've talked about this before in the book, Cave, about how it is that one person can take the same mm you know, a few hundred thousand words, the same 26 letters of the alphabet and use them to evoke imagery, emotion, um, to create understanding, I think, and insight. Um, And another person can take exactly the same letters and words Mm. and not achieve anything like that, Mm. you know. um, I think that's really interesting. So when you're coming to write your poetry, how do you approach it? I mean... Do you have a sort of a sense of the kind of words you're going to use or do they come to you? Tell us about that. Um, yeah, this is an interesting sort of topic, isn't it? Mm. Um, because I think as a lot of writers would say, you know, a lot of it is kind of intuitive and you don't want to overanalyze it. Um, having said that, though, um, I, I don't really buy into, you know, the idea of inspiration all that much, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I don't particularly like mystificatory theories of writing. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think it has, um, there are some very sort of, uh, what's the word I can use? Um, there, there are just everyday things that you can do. To, Practical to make approaches. You, that's right, to make yourself right. Um, but one of the things, I mean, you mentioned that Whaling Station poem. I suppose one of the things about poetry or any other writing for that matter is, is there needs to be something that kind of niggles at you or gets at you or bothers you or disturbs you or possibly worse. Um, and and then you need to see what you can do with it. So uh, one of the things, too, is that you often start with a kind of in, a kind of inchoate mess, don't you? I mean, every mm. life, the universe and everything is kind of out there. What are you going to choose, you know? Mm. So you write a poem and then you think, because I think I think I fir- that's part of another sequence. I think I first wrote the the poem about my sister taking me oh, to, to chicken. deliver chickens chick- and, yes. and seeing the chickens being slaughtered beforehand. Um, and again, that was sort of born out of a sort of childhood trauma, I guess. Mm. Uh, and and so then I thought, 
more programmatically about that, I thought, well, animals and, and slaughter, actually, are, you know, what have, how have I, what sort of experiences have I had with that? Because they obviously are very disturbing ones. Mm. Um, and so then I wrote two more poems, and one of them was The Whaling Station. And then I subsequently wrote another poem about The Whaling Station. Yes, in more or less, Starstruck. Yes, more or less sort of saying I got it wrong the first time. Um, but But I think something has to... Um, something has to really be there. You have to be sort of, I mean, yes, you can in a sense just go, well, I'm going to write about anything. And then you just sit there and you work on your language until it becomes interesting. It has to be interesting. doesn't mm, it? Yes. And if you're not going to, if you're not going to interest yourself, how on earth are you going to interest anyone else? So for me, that's, that's key. Um, and sometimes subject matter can in itself, I think can be interesting. Um, I mean, that's slight heresy, I think, in certain sort of poetic circles in a, in a way, because poetry should be, you know, generally speaking, a lyric poetry is often thought of being more about the manner in which way something has been talked about rather than the matter. So it's not okay, the subject matter is right. not really important. It's all, it's about the stylization, about how you how you do it. I think I think there's a big con- continuum between those two extreme points, and and I think uh, everybody really occupies some place along that continu- continuum and uh so i think people are interested in experience and intense mm. experiences mm. and so i guess i was um trying to understand something about my own experience but also about again i guess the kind of wider culture that i grew up in uh, and that still exists in some ways and you're very good on the wider culture i must say we'll talk about that in a minute okay. but do you find it cathartic then Uh, Is writing about those childhood traumas, does it help? I I suppose it must, yes. Um, There's a a book I'm really um, quite keen on by the psychoanalyst um, D.W. Winnicott called Mm. Playing in Reality. Oh, yes, you've Um, done some great quotations from it. Yeah, so in my um, book Outside, uh, he, he had a big effect on that book because basically he talks about, I mean, he's talking about you know, infant development for the most part, but but he's saying that play, and I think anything, and he says that anything creative is a kind of play, mm. whether it's you know composing music or writing a book. Um, creativity or play is a way is this kind of third space between you, your own subjectivity, your own internal world, and the external world, um, and you can get a kind of um, symbolic control because. The individual can't control the world or experience. It just happens. Yeah. Um, but you can get some kind of symbolic control over it through play. Um, and so play, in a way, is about loss. I mean, it's loss of the, uh, in the first instance, the loss of uh, contact with, with the mother or the parent figure, I guess. Um, so, yes, I think to some extent you can. I don't know if I'd use the word catharsis, but I think it is useful. I mean, I don't think I would do it otherwise if there wasn't some sort of psychic or psychological payoff. So is every poem you write imbued with some kind of emotion? Do you feel some poems painful to write, joyful to write? So is every poem an act of play? Well, I think every poem is, yes. Um, But play... As as the you know the history of art shows is incredibly um, diverse. Um, yeah, but I mean, of course I, the word play tends to have that positive, yes, happy connotation. Does, yes. Go outside and play. That's right. 
play. And also trivial know. too. It's yeah, tri- yeah. It's not yeah. like work. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, a it's sort of leisure system. time. It's what you That's do right. when the work yes. is done. Um, but I think, or well, let's call it creativity then. Uh, I think that um, isn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily feel good. Um, yeah. It can feel quite bad actually. Um, but the, the outcome can be good in that I think you have in some way psychically dealt with something. But having said that, I think the idea of closure or, or, or even therapy can be a little, a little pat or facile. I, th- mm, I think, yeah. uh, I mean, I wrote a number of poems <clears throat> for, um, Starstruck about an experience I had, um, some years back when I had a heart attack basically yeah. and had to have, um, a double bypass. And that was again, a kind of traumatic experience. Um, does that mean that I'm now over it? Uh, no, not really. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so I think there are limits to what creativity can do. But having said that, I'm glad I wrote those poems. Yes, um, and, and I'm glad you you did too, actually. They give us a, a, a really thoughtful insight, I think, into that experience and the hospital experience, mm. the pain experience. Yeah, that's what it was kind of about, really. It was more about the hospital experience than, than anything, I suppose. Um, and I didn't want it to be, I mean, obviously it was autobiographical, but I didn't yeah. really want it to be about me. So I used the second person. So it's all you, yes. you, 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 rather than I, because I wanted there to be a distance. Um, and it's also called um, Documents. Um, yes, I was going so to ask you I was about kind that. of trying to get that sort of documentary air again, which is a sense of distance. But the documents are also referring to, or the title also refers to the fact that every poem has some kind of document in it, whether it's a novel or something like that. So something not by me. Um, because in, in part, actually, the sequence was about how books and other things make our world and, and again, make the world more bearable. Even, even in extreme experiences or, you know, negative experiences like I was having at that time. Um, so there's reference to, um, references to Muriel Sparks novels, for instance. Yes, I noticed that. You read quite a number of them while you were convalescing. Yeah, I, I reread them, yes. Yeah. I, I've read, read them all previously and I, for some reason, was attracted to them when I was unwell, um, partly because they were short, I think. Um, but also because they, they have this marvellous sort of darkness mixed with comedy about yeah. them. And, and I think that was something that I wanted. I, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to wallow in the situation. Um, but at the same time, I guess the darkness was speaking to the situation. I don't know. Mm. Well, I think isn't that the power of, of words and isn't that what poetry and fiction novels are, are really about, about giving you insight but also as a kind of touchstone for your own emotions mm. because as readers surely we bring ourselves to the different forms of writing and that's why it's so subjective because of course we bring ourselves mm. um and my experience in a particular book may be very well different from your experience depending on my circumstances my history you know exactly so, right yes i mean ex- reading is such a personal experience isn't it i mean you do it um, I mean, if we're talking, I mean, we are talking reading rather yeah. than hearing. Um, so you do it by yourself. Yes. It's, it's silent. No one else is around. I mean, it's such an intensely personal experience. But I think any artwork, of course, um, that speaks to us is is speaking to us on a kind of personal level, even if even if it's just because we like um, 
you know, certain colours or certain sounds. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it has to always be about some, you know, psychically disturbing thing in our lives. I, I think uh, we we just uh, respond to the aesthetic experience, in, or some of us do, in very intense ways. Um, and I think um, for people who don't, often that is because of um, I mean all sorts of factors, but I think you know the lack of opportunity, um, mm-hmm. social inequality, inequalities in education, all of those sorts of things, um, which I think are really um, you know just just as uh, significant as economic inequality. I mean I think they're just another part of economic inequality or social inequality. Well, I think that's true because I think if you're privileged enough to be able to read poetry and allow it to affect you. That is actually a privilege, I think, in many ways. And a lot of people are probably would never even occur to them to pick up a book of poetry. No, that's right. Although increasingly these days that's across the whole social spectrum, I suppose. Yeah, but, yeah. but yes, I think I think there has been um, uh, a general sort of suspicion of poetry as being something that's too hard, too difficult, don't understand it. Um, and, and And that's kind of even reached to the point of, teachers certainly school teachers mm-hmm. um so that uh it becomes increasingly hard i suppose to engage a young audience mm. um and and so you have these ever dwindling audiences um although of course i mean there are always young people who are who are taken by the the intensity and strangeness that poetry offers the wonder that mm. i think is poetry so is poetry still relevant today well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's as relevant as string quartets or movies. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, who's to say what's relevant and for whom? Mm. I think, uh, and and as I say, there is such, a, and I'm not talking about you know two or forty thousand years worth of poetic history. I mean, right now there is such even just in Australia, without looking at other English-speaking countries, such an amazing variety of poetry around. If if you want to go and look for it. Um, that I I can't imagine that it's not and poetry, poetry. I mean, actually, one of the one of the projects I'm doing as an academic mm. is looking at uh, the 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 way in which, even though poetry is kind of marginal, it nevertheless crops up in in strange ways. So it has a kind of ambiguous vitality in our culture. So, for instance, it, it, at moments again of intensity. Um, such as weddings and funerals, it's often oh, yeah, it's often yeah. quoted. So there are these sort of uh, there are these vernacular traditions or popular traditions of poetry being used in certain ways, even though you know ninety nine percent of the time people won't read poetry or, or think about it. All of a sudden they're getting married, they want a poem at their wedding yeah. or at a funeral or whatever. Similarly, at intense sort of more public times, um, poetry can become important. So you know. Um, uh, memorial uh, yes, rituals really. and things like that. Yes. Um, after 9-11 in New York, apparently there was a kind of explosion of poetry. You know, poetry readings were happening everywhere. People were just putting poetry literally on, you know, the wall, uh, you know, buildings in New yes. York. Um, 
and also in in, in uh, other cultural formations. So in novels and in movies, you'll find it being kind of smuggled in or imported in in interesting ways. I mean, one of the most obvious examples in the last twenty years in film is Four Weddings and a Funeral, funeral. Yes. which has um, Stop All the Clogs, W. H. Auden's Funeral yes. Blues, um, which wasn't really um, written as as an elegy uh, when it was first written. It was written for. Uh, a verse drama, actually, and and it was a song. It was it was oh, a, a kind of um, it was the one of four um, uh, cabaret songs. Actually, it was the the sad song in this suite oh. of four songs, and it, so it has a very interesting cultural history. Um, anyway, but it does get used in an amazingly powerful mm. and elegiac way in that mm. film. Um, but there are all sorts of examples of poetry turning up in in very mainstream movies. Um, and I, so I think that's interesting, which it, it does show that however marginal it may be in education and, 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 and book reading generally, um, it nevertheless has this, as I say, a kind of ambiguous vitality and, and sort of pops up in interesting ways. So, yes, I'd say it definitely is relevant. Well, I think that's an absolutely fantastic kind of explanation and a wonderful kind of highlighting of how poetry actually does enrich our lives, but often in subtle ways where people perhaps aren't even aware that mm. it's poetry. Mm. You know? That's right, absolutely. Um, you write a lot about modern life and especially about the modern environment, um, which I find, and you do it really well. You know, you have a wonderful okay. way with um, figurative language and uh, metaphoric language and, you know, you have fantastic... Um, Moments, the cat slide roof, you know. Um, but I don't always know quite what you mean. Um, you've got a, an ending of a poem about the the wombat of of pain. <laughs> the wombat of pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about that that sort of imagery and the way that you might use language that you know most people wouldn't sort of put those words together. Mm. Which is precisely why I used it. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm trying to come up with new, interesting, you know, juxtapositions, images, whatever. And that's that's what, you know, most poets do or novelists for that matter. Um, I mean, you want to produce a, a sense of, amongst other things, you want to produce a sense of surprise, of, of, yes. some, of, of a new way of seeing things. Um, the one bout of pain, I mean, that was a phrase that was looking for a poem for years. I just had that sitting around and I thought, I need to put that in a poem and eventually it became one. Yes, um, it's in um, it's in Outside, outside which right. I just loved. Oh, good. You know, Thank you. Pretty much every poem in here I thought was really amazing and I've read it several times, oh, this wow. anthology. Oh, that's nice. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I really, um, you've got some really clever moments in here but sort of evocative. But what I find extraordinary too is the, there's a familiarity. So mm. it's as if you've managed to encapsulate in a few words something that is instantly recognisable, that the reader kind of goes, oh, of course. It's- well, that's good. If I can do that, that's that's great too, I think, being able to – so there's the surprise issue, but there's also the yes, of course yeah. side of things as well. But getting back to the not quite understanding, um, mm. I mean, I think that's actually um, that's actually key to the experience. I mean, you look at – <laughs> It's an interesting thing, and I think it gets back to poetry employing language, and we are, we have such an instrumentalist, practical view of language. You know, it does things, you know, it allows us to make tables or whatever. Um, but but 
poetry plays with that to the point where it starts to loosen itself a bit from its moorings of meaning, if I can use a right. metaphor. I like um, yeah. and, uh, and that's, that's actually part of the pleasure, I think, of poetry. The American poet Wallace Stevens says, said in a poem, um, the poem should resist the intelligence almost successfully. So there should be some kind of what is going on here feeling for you, right. I think. Um, now, as I say, I think, you know, people look at, a, say, a Rothko painting or listen to some music. What does that mean? You know, I mean, the, the aesthetic experience is enough in a sense. Although, of course, a lot of people do look at abstract art and says, oh, it doesn't mean anything. My five-year-old could have done that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, but I guess the point I'm making is that poetry is actually taking you to the limits or sometimes can be taking you to the limits of meaning and and playing around with language in ways that you never would have thought of doing yourself. Right. So is that one of the paradoxes of poetry, that in fact this idea that it's meant to have moments or parts that are hard to understand, that challenge our understanding, when in fact people want to be able to understand, mm. they want the meaning to be literal or they want the mm. meaning to be obvious so that they can read the poetry and just sort of get a simple pleasure from it. Mm. Oh, there's a bit of a, like a Tennyson poet, poem perhaps where it's a sort of a lovely story and lots of easy rhymes mm. and, you know, there it is. Um, uh, but um, is that the paradox of poetry, that in fact one of the reasons it's become marginalised in the modern world is that it can be difficult to understand. Mm. It requires an elasticity of the mind and, uh, and, and some work, perhaps. Um, and words now, social media, texting, that sort of thing, have become simpler, like we've now down to sort of emojis, which I think <laughs> have, a, have a great value at times. But Interesting to see if we have a poetry of emoji. Um, well, I've, I've wondered that as I We probably do. Um, look, yes, look, I think you're right. I think difficulty is an issue. Um, but difficulty is... And this is, again, I think, partly where um, education, cultural literacy and so forth can come in. I mean, mm. lots of contemporary classical music is incredibly difficult, mm. you know, quote-unquote difficult. Um, and it doesn't have a tune. It doesn't, you know, employ traditional uh, harmony and so forth. Um, similarly, modern or contemporary poetry often uh, also kind of rejects those sorts of traditional forms or, or whatever or plays with them i think is more is a, is a more accurate way of looking at it but um look yes some poetry is uh, you know just baffling i think there's no doubt about that other poetry though you know if you read someone like judith beveridge for instance i mean i think she's a terrific poet and she often writes about you know the natural world and mm. things like that Nevertheless, I'm, I'm sure that some people would still find her difficult. And that's because I think of the, uh, of the lack of, in, uh, of real experience with, with poetic traditions, conventions, and so on. Right. So if, if, you, if you took someone who'd never seen a Hollywood movie mm. and just at the age of 30 showed them, you know, I don't know, Jaws or something, they'd probably go, what is all this about, you know? I mean... Well, I don't know if they would, but I guess the point I'm making is we, we tend to naturalise things like movies, but that's because we have actually forgotten about how much we've learnt about them. We understand conventions about films like, mm. you know, close-ups, panning, 
you know, how, how editing worked. I mean, in, in the early days of film, the, the first kind of major, I can't remember which film this was, it might have been a W.G. Griffith film, the first kind of major use of intercutting, which is to say having two scenes going on simultaneously and jumping from one to the other, yeah. the, the producer or director, I can't remember who, was very concerned that audiences wouldn't understand what oh. was going on. Right. So that's an example of how, how literate we are now in filmic uh, language. But we don't have that same kind of literacy in poetry anymore. Well, Harold Bloom actually talks a lot about the importance of allusion and the fact that every successive great poet has is really building on the work mm. of all the preceding great poets and that there's a lot of allusion that goes on in the great poetry, so to the Bible, to mm. um, Shakespeare, if you're after Shakespeare, or to Milton or Dunn. Um, and he talks a lot about the sort of that importance and gives a lot of examples, mm. um, you know, of specific lines in poems and then tell you says well this is referring me and of course people up until the sort of late 19th century were or even the early 20th were raised on the classics if you had a good mm. education mm. you understood that's right the yeah. greeks you, you you knew herodotus you knew you know the bible even if you weren't a religious person yeah. you understood um you know you knew the psalms you knew the song of solomon mm. and the book of isaiah and you understood that incredibly rich mm. often poetic language mm. absolutely so yeah. perhaps you know, someone like Judith Beveridge, when she's writing, I assume she understands her own poetry. Mm. But perhaps the challenge then is that perhaps we're meant to work at it. Perhaps it's meant to be almost like a sort of um, a treasure locked in a box and you're meant to sort of work to find the key or to answer the riddle to get the clue to open the box to see the treasure inside. Perhaps that's... I, I agree with you. I think um, difficulty is actually part of, and, and this is something that I was thinking about before and I forgot to mention but mm. actually difficulty is part of the aesthetic experience and it doesn't just happen in poems um, I mean this has been theorised to death amongst various literary theorists but if I can just mm. get a bit historical for a moment um, a so called Russian formalist earlier in the 20th century called Viktor Shlovsky theorised that um, literary language is difficult because it defamiliarises um, uh, the everyday. So we just get used to things and everything mm. becomes, he talks about the automatism of perception. So we see a watch, we don't really think about it or a knife and fork, whatever. But literary language impedes understanding. It makes things difficult. It roughens things up. And someone like Emily Dickinson is a good example mm. here. And she was writing in the mid-19th century. So, you know, it's not as if this difficulty thing is all of a sudden a new a no, new invention. No. Yeah. Um, but that but that difficulty is itself the, the in a sense the whole point of the aesthetic experience because it, it forces us to look at things in a different way and to think about things in a different way. It gets rid of what he calls that automatism of perception. We stop so, we stop just looking at things in an automatic way. So in a way it's it's like a refreshing of, yes, of everyday things. Yes. And I find that in your poetry, there's such a strong connection to the everyday in your poetry, yes. yeah. but somehow you manage to imbue it with a meaning that takes it well beyond the everyday, which I think is a real gift. Well, thank you again. Um, I, I think for me, one of the key sort of uh, aesthetic experiences is the uncanny. Mm. And the uncanny isn't just something that's scary, but it's... Um, you know, Freud talked about it in his essay on the uncanny. Um, and the uncanny in German is unheimlich, which means unhomely. 
okay? And it's the opposite of heimlich, which is homely. But he actually says the two become confused. So the, the uncanny is the disquieting interplay between the familiar and the unfamiliar. Right. And I really love that yeah. as an experience. And that's what I like about movies and, and, uh, and you know, fiction and poetry as well, which is... Um, and I'm very suggestible. So um, at the end of watching a film, often um, um, my wife, Maria Takalanda, who's also a writer, and I, we often say we feel like we're in that particular film. Mm. So I, I, the uncanny is, is, in a sense, the aesthetic experience in a way. It's, it's the heightening of experience of the, the, sudden, the, the familiar suddenly becoming a bit strange, yeah. a, bit, a bit odd. And I particularly like that. So that's possibly why the everyday is present in my work because I'm actually trying to strange the everyday up. Well, you do. Perhaps you could read for us Landscape Psyche. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I need my glasses. (laughs) Good (laughs) idea, definitely. I just remembered, I can't see. Um, So, yes, it's called Landscape slash Psyche. So there's a a confusion going on as to whether we're talking about the outside world or the internal world. So that kind of, again, brings up that Winnicottian Almost issue. a sort of shorthand for poetry itself. It, 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 it is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Here, modernity is a rumour. The eucalypts untidy as logic. Anarchic birds and their noise, both wanting to be somewhere else. The sun, bold atheist, making everything seem as it is. Somewhere, there is water, secrecy made audible. The bliss of long grass inhabited by breeze. Rocks and their values. Somewhere, silent in its burrow, hides the wombat of pain. I don't entirely understand that myself, I should add. Well, see, that's really interesting. I mean, I just found that... things seem to work. A really gripping poem and really evocative. I love that the sun bold atheist, which absolutely, you know, smacks of pagan sun Mm. worship, the solar Mm. worship, all Mm. of the things that predated Christianity and other religious forms, you know. Um, Yeah, water, secrecy made audible. It's just, I don't know how you do it, rocks and their values. And you suddenly think, well, yeah, actually I can see is sort of embedded in rock value and then there's all those sort of linguistic connotations of solid as a rock and Mm. on this rock Mm. we build, you know, all these Which values. I thought of. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. I love it when um, people tell me what my poems mean. Yeah, yes, well, I'm, I'm not telling what it means. I'm just telling you what it well, meant no, to me, I guess. No, I think yeah, you yeah. are. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what interpretation is. It's, it's teasing out these sorts of things, which the, read, the, the writer can never be fully in, aware of or in control of. Yes. Um, and, and, of course, the writer is the first reader of the poem as mm. well. Um, yeah. But in terms of what you were saying about, you know, paganism and so forth, I mean, I think one of, one of the things about... Um, uh, Harold Bloom, who you were talking about before, yeah. is I think I think he's right. I mean, clearly, you know, tradition, literary tradition was very and has been very important. But uh, particularly um, for modern poets, uh, everything, in a sense, is is available to us for alluding to or or picking up on in some way or playing with or whatever. So it's not just Shakespeare. It's not just the Bible. It's not just the, the canon. I mean, it's everything. It's movies. It's TV. Mm-hmm. It's advertisements. It's um, anything you've ever written or, I mean, read, basically, or seen or heard. So uh, I think that's one of the exciting things about being a poet is trying to 
find new combinations of all of those of, of that just incredible un, you know un, unimaginable diversity out there whether that's you know the, the material world or the cultural world so has there been a sort of disjunct in that history of poetry that for a long time for centuries we had a sort of growing poetic tradition you know of the great poets and and building on you know earlier work etc um and then perhaps in the 20th century we actually perhaps threw off those shackles to a degree where you now say well sort of everything's available but mm. perhaps it wasn't always that wasn't always perceived to be acceptable mm. if you wanted to be a great poet you had to sort of sit within the confines of the rules perhaps whatever those might have been yeah people often think of poetry as a kind of rule-bound thing certainly pre-20th century yeah um and there is there is a lot of um, truth to that. Truth to that, I guess. Uh, I mean, the project of modernism was to make it new. To quote Ezra Pound. So yes, yeah. um, getting rid of traditional, you know, pers- use of perspective in visual art or um, use of harmony in music or you know poetic forms in poetry. So like getting rid of the, sh- the so-called shackles of tradition. Um, but I think if you look back over time, even within those supposedly traditional things. Um, there's there's a lot more strangeness there than than mm. you might think, mm. um, and a lot more uh, originality in bumping up against conventions and so forth. Even in the 18th century, I mean, the the the, the so-called Augustans, the English poets of the 18th century, which who were who were really very uninterested in you know formal um, innovation, um, could be really very strange um, and and come up with some. Well, you know, quite extraordinary satires and things like that. Well, even a little later, William Blake could be very strange. Uh, absolutely. And I was going to say, actually, the project of modernism actually starts a 100 years before the 20th century. Right. I mean, the, the Romantics, uh, if you look at um, Wordsworth and Coleridge, mm. their first collection, um, which was included both their poems, was called Lyrical Ballads. Yes. And, um, you know, that was a kind of supposedly revolutionary statement in, in as much as it, it, it said... There are no inherently poetic subjects. I mean, that was a kind of 18th century idea that you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't talk about you know a beggar or something in a poem because that was you know Not, unworthy of yes, poetic yeah, attention. Yeah. But the Romantics turned that on its head and said, "Well, no, any any figure is is worthy of poetic Everything. attention." Everything. So revision um, uh, development it, it's been going on for hundreds of years. So, sort of, therefore, speaking of worthy subjects, perhaps you could read us your poem about Elvis. Ah, yes, subjects, I, yes. Is there any um, more worthy subject than Elvis Presley? <laughs> well, the funny thing is I'm not a real Elvis fan, <laughs> um, but I think he has his moments. Uh, it, this is from a section in um, Starstruck. Which called, is your most recent anthology. Which is my latest book, yes. Yeah. Um, and the – what is this section called? Um, pastorals, of course, that's right. Um, 18 dramatic monologues. Uh, so what I do in this section is I bring together – popular music and the ancient poetic mode of the pastoral, um, which goes back, you know, at least to Virgil, you know, classical times. where And that mode um, basically is, presents a sort of idealised, artificial view of rural existence. So you have, you know, shepherds singing love songs to each other mm. and so forth. It doesn't, it doesn't have, you know, sick cows and stuff like that. Um <laughs> And I, it just struck me. I read a poem about. Um, I, I read about a film about um, the Beatles' secretary, um, which I subsequently saw later. Um, 
good old Frida, it's called. Um, and the poem is called Apple Core Limited after um, the Beatles company. Oh, yeah. And, there, and, and I saw all of these pastoral images, and it ends with a reference to Mother Nature's Son, which is from the White Album by the Beatles, which is yeah. as pastoral a poem as you can get. And I suddenly, and this, this is that idea about, you know, yes, you might have a kind of inspiration, but then you can get kind of programmatic about it. So I started thinking, well, what else is there? And things just came up everywhere. I mean, obviously, if you think about sort of classic rock in the 60s, that you've got the hippies and they were inherently kind of pastoral. They were idealising mm. the idea of leaving the city, moving to the simpler country, life. simpler life, yeah. all of absolutely pastoral tropes, yeah. okay, ideas that have been around for thousands of years, which they were trying to actually live through. Um, and probably suffered because of that. <laughs> um, but there were also marvellous things like I, I, I looked into um, Stevie Nicks, who is um, mm, she's a artist, but she's also from Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. And she went to Arcadia High School. Now, Arcadia is like the preeminent uh, classical pastoral place. Um, so all of these lovely little things just started popping up. And and Elvis was another one. I mean, he's you don't really think of him as being pastoral. He's obviously and and pop music generally is in some ways kind of inherently urban, I guess. But um, I came across a story in the Guardian, and I in fact stole the headline, <laughs> which is how to be a better Elvis. Uh, it's probably the best thing about the poem, actually, about <laughs> about how every year in Parks, which is a rural town in New South Wales, they have an Elvis festival. Yeah. So lots of people go along and they, you know, get dressed up as Elvis and do their Elvis impersonations or, or whatever. Um, and Parks is also the place um, where they have an observatory. Yes. And there was a film made about that called The Dish. Yes. Um, so all of those things kind of came together. And for better or worse, I wrote this poem called How to Be a Better Elvis. The Parks Observatory, surrounded by its wheat and alien sheep, listens to the stars. The town statue of the founding father looks to be singing or preaching, an oversized book in hand. In January, the Elvis festival herds in the overweight men, the Priscilla lookalikes, the memorabilia's promise of a golden age. I'm not interested in the Vegas era. I return each summer like an old-time itinerant, getting younger every year, reaching back until I find that boy in a Tupelo shotgun shack, crazy for music and listening for God. And I forgot to mention that all of those pastoral poems are actually dramatic monologues. So talking of poetic history, a dramatic monologue is a poem in which the poet, the voice is not that of the, the poets. So the speaker is okay. a different person. So in this case, it's the, the Elvis impersonator to, yeah, talking. Yeah. Um, in other cases, I think I've got Brian Eno, the musician, talking. So uh, that was another instance of me not wanting to write, obviously, autobiographical poems. I'd got really bored of writing about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And po lyric poetry often kind of encourages that. There is a long tradition, of course, of... I mean, the, the Romantics, in a way, again, sort of started this idea that when you write lyric poetry, you are getting in touch with yourself, basically. Right, right. Um, and, and I think there is a lot of truth to that, but I, I just got bored of talking about myself, so I made up these characters. It's a, it's a great poem. Thank you. No, it really is. You mm -hmm. have an extraordinary way with words. So Owen Barfield suggests that consciousness is to poetry what marble is to sculpture. <laughs> 
Well, that's interesting. I'd say language, but obviously you can't have as language. opposed to without consciousness. consciousness, of course. Yeah, consciousness and language. I mean, where do the two start and end? I mean, obviously the two um, are continuous. So, they? so consciousness or the marble, what the marble is sculpted, is the material that's being mm. worked. So, yeah. do you agree? With that? Well, I think so. Yeah, yeah. That, and in a sense, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about play. Yeah. Is that um, what poets are interested in is language yeah. in the same way that painters are interested in colour or paint or composers are interested in sound. I mean, they're just kind of fundamentally interested in that in a way that normal people <laughs> aren't, right? You know, I mean, to spend hours and hours thinking about the sound of an instrument or the the way in which certain colours work against each other or the way in which words work together is um, is about dealing with your materials and your materials always resist you just mm. in the way mm. a clump of marble is going to re- you know literally oh. resist you language does the same okay that's brilliant yes that's really helpful and insightful i think and that really gives a much better um understanding of what he's really saying there yes because mm. it does doesn't it mm. and i was going to say that about language because how do you select you know english has about a 500,000 word vocabulary it's one of the biggest vocabularies mm. of language in our world. And and so how do you select of all the available words? And so many of our words have so many synonyms or mm. one word can have so many meanings. Mm. The word set, for example, I think has, you know, more than 40 meanings. So how then do you pinpoint the word that is the right word? Mm. And is it about that? Is it about getting the words in, finding A, finding the right word, and then getting them into the right order? <laughs> yes, I suppose that's one way of putting it. Um, I mean, as as you're writing, you generally aren't thinking at that level. Okay. Generally, I think in in the first instance, right? Yeah. You know, in the first the first draft. I mean, everyone works differently. Um, but I'm often okay with just putting a word down, thinking of a better one later. I mean, that happens a lot, yep, yep. of course, a, a lot of times. Um, but I guess it's like, you know, a composer <coughs> composing, whether that person's at a keyboard or a computer or just with some paper, um, you don't think, right, now I'm going to, um, you know, this is going to be an E flat and I'm going to no, you know, okay, have this yeah. kind of harmony working here, there. and I mean, you just kind of go with it. Yeah, once once you get analogy. to a level of... of um, competency yeah. with your material, whether it's whether it's sound or language or whatever, you just go with it, and and the tinkering and mucking around with little details come later, and that's also where the point where you go, oh look, I've seen that I've you know I'm I'm using uh, <coughs> you know a particular kind of harmonic shift is going on here, or I'm using a particular kind of language here. Yeah. So you you write it, and then you try and work out what it's about, and then you that's when you become the reader as well, right? So isn't that the mag- Is that the magic of language? I, I suppose the yeah. mysticism, yeah. because to well, me, there's a. I know you said at the very beginning <laughs> that you don't really buy into any of that, but to me, there is a mysticism in language. I know personally when I've sat at the computer or with a notebook and mm. pen and I'm writing and suddenly it's without any consciousness, mm. the words are appearing and it's almost, it's, it's a surprise. Yes. I didn't know yeah. that was coming. I didn't. Yeah. So surely isn't that a mystical element in the well, process of creation? you can describe it creation? as mystical if you want. I, I don't have a problem <laughs> with that. Uh, um, I mean, I guess I would say you just know more than you know. You, you think know? it's the subconscious doing um, its thing, perhaps. You can talk about it in terms of the subconscious okay. as well. I mean, there are all sorts of ways of doing it. I mean, I think one way is that there are certain, I agree with 
I can see, I can understand both those ways, and and certainly I think the subconscious is is, is a very strong way of talking about it, but it's not the only one. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of them is is, uh, and this is something that Maria Takalanda has been writing about in her scholarly work is is just the materials that you work with um, are enabling. They they mm. make mm. You, you do things. So, for instance, um, if you look at let's take the Beatles for example, if you look at the Beatles. Um, work and they they their entire recording history um is you know was over in just a bit over um what seven years yeah. in fact less than seven years which is just extraordinary if you think about it um the different um things that they do are absolutely bound up in the material changes of the recording studio okay so the introduction of um you know a multi-track tape recording the introduction of um, uh, certain kinds of uh, effects, the certain kinds of um, uh, production techniques, all of those things. Obviously, I mean, it wasn't as if they could have written Penny Lane in 1962, but they just chose to write I Want to Hold Your Hand, right? right? So there's the, the... It wasn't actually available to them no, to do that. they didn't have the material yes. th- affordances, if you like, yeah. to, to write such a thing. Um, and also, um, you you are working within a context and that context is um, not just a kind of cultural one in the sense that you might know about, I don't know, what a sonnet is or something, but um, in a sense what I was talking about before, you know, all of, all of the things you watch, you read, mm-hmm. but also the, the, uh, the kind of uh, networks that you might belong to as a writer or a composer again or whatever it might be. Um, and that's, that's something that um, possibly if I can use the word amateur, writers might might be less aware of is the effect that, you know, getting, say, a commission to write something will have, right. um, which is very different from just sitting around and waiting for quote-unquote sort of inspiration or, to an happen. organic experience when yeah. you're actually required to do something. That's right. Because it actually shifts the whole sense of what you're doing and the pressure and it all yes. has an effect. And, you, then you, and then you do something that you wouldn't have done before. Yeah, Completely yeah. new. Wow. Wow. Well, there's so much more I would have liked to talk. Perhaps you could come back another time, Dave. Oh, that would be fantastic. So many wonderful lines in your poetry. Um, Thank you. Mirrors slowly avail themselves of the appearance of things. I love that. Hands prick like the Middle Ages. Oh, yeah, so extraordinary. And the hands as the body's peasant workers. <laughs> thought that was brilliant. And even the way you described the number five. Oh, right. Flat-roofed yeah, yeah. with a, a belly and pregnant. I, it's just extraordinary, really. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm it's so been an absolute pleasure. And for me. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much for coming into the book cave. But before we let you go, oh, yeah. as always in the book cave, we want our visitors uh, to tell us or show us the names of their three books that they're going to contribute to our virtual time capsule, our book cave book bin, uh, the books that you would like the world to read a thousand years from now. I think that's a great idea, the the virtual um, time capsule is terrific. And um, as someone who, in a sense, reads professionally, uh, I agonised over this. (laughs) In a way, I probably shouldn't have. Um, and I ended up choosing a, a bunch of Scandinavians in a way mm. and, and two books in translation, which, which I felt a bit funny about because literature and translation is a, is a complex and, mm. and problematic thing, which we don't have time to talk about here. But nevertheless, I thought, whatever, I'll go with that. So my first book is uh, Tove Janssen's Moominland 
midwinter. I think, um, I mean, this is a children's book, yes. obviously. I think Toby, and she does write for adults, well, she did write for adults too, um, but she's best known for her Moomin series. I think Toby Janssen is a genius, and Philip Pullman thinks so as well. So, you know, I think in company there. This book in particular, because there's a series of Moomin books, mm. um, the Moomins are these little sort of um, hippopotamus-like creatures yeah. who live in Finland. Or somewhere like from Oh, I never ever thought um, of them as hippopotamus. I, I, I can see what you're saying, but I grew up with them too, and I just adored them. Comet yeah. in Moominland, yep. you know. Yeah. Um, but there's such, as well as the the whimsy and the in the yeah. humour of it, there's such there's such profound truths and 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 a strangeness too. Um, yeah. So I don't think these are facile books at all. No. Um, and this one in particular, I read it to my son uh, when he was about six or seven, and there's a there's a chapter when the, right. the Lady of the Cold comes along. So there's this very, very... Because we're talking, you know, being close to the top of the world, near near the polar yeah. ice caps. Um, so winter for the Moomins is um, is extreme. And, and they, in fact, sleep through winter. But but one of the Moomins wakes up. Moomin Troll. Moomin Troll wakes I up, that's right. Um, and And so the Lady of the Cold comes along. And that had a massive effect on my son. So... I think I think that is an extraordinary book, and I think of all the children's liter- literature books around, that's probably the one I'd want to keep the most. Wonderful, wonderful illustrations. Oh, and of course, she's an illustrator as well. Just yeah. extraordinary. Yes, her illustrations the, and the combination of text and, and illustration yes. is amazing. But also the characters, Snufkin mm. and the um, oh, the Hemulin. Mm. Goodness yeah. me. Yes, the the characters are amazingly um, true to life. Actually, really, which is funny considering how yes. how um, uh, you know fantastical they are. Um, so that's the first one. Yes, the second course. one, um, another book in translation, is Thomas Tranströmer's Selected Poems. Uh, he was Swedish and another winner of the Nobel Prize um, not so many years ago, in fact, and. Uh, and again, it's kind of odd to choose poetry in translation because, as we've been saying, poetry is language at its sort of highest peak mm. um, and intensity. So, obviously, the sorts of musical and sonic elements that a particular language has and is being used in poetry is more or less going to be completely lost in translation. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, talking of books that spoke to you, I mean, this book has... Is just a touchstone for me. Um, I mean, I came to it relatively late. I think I only read him about five or six years ago. Um, after him being a name, they've just been sort of floating. You know how there's always these names floating around. Yes. Think, yeah, I'll get yeah. onto that one of these. Yes, days. yes. And I got onto it, and I was totally floored by it. Um, I mean, he has this spare, uh, extraordinary sort of uh, again, sort of Scandinavian aesthetic of, of, of you know, dark trees, ice, water. Yeah. All of that, but also um, amazing, amazing use of imagery. His his use of metaphor, I think, is absolutely up there with the best. So, Wonderful, Thomas Tranströmer. Well, it is a universal time capsule. Yeah, well, so good. Well, that, actually, Swedes, that was another reason yes, I chose the it. Will yes, be is that I thought that the the um, over emphasis on English language Indeed. literature yeah, was, no, this is, is actually fabulous. a real problem. Great. Um, and then I got completely um, nepotistic and chose a book by my wife, <laughs> Maria Takalanda. But I did get your um, approval. No, no, for that's this. absolutely fine. No, no, it's entirely your choice. You um, can bring 
whatever you like. Into but, the... but this is not for purely um, sentimental reasons, if I can use that word. Yeah. Um, the book is called The Double. It's a collection of short stories, um, and it came out in 2013. And I think it is just the most extraordinary collection of short stories. The, the first section, which is the longest, is made up of um, really very dark um, stories, uh, of set all over the place too. Mm. One of them's um, a kind of science fiction story set in this future world where um, boys, once they reach a certain age, get sent off to, to war. But it's a kind of allegory about yeah. about masculinity yeah. in, in under patriarchy. Um, and all of the stories have got their titles from some and the collection itself, because of course um, Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Double. And, um, there are various other books called The Double. So it, it's very much in touch with literary history, um, but it's also very... And, and I guess something I was trying to say before when we are talking is that there's always this tension between, you know, tradition and originality, for want of a better word, um, that you, you take things that exist but you try and make them... Yeah, something own. new again. And that's, and that's what's happening here. Yeah. Um, but then in the second section of this book, which is shorter, um, there are four Roankin stories. Roankin is... Well, you'll have to read them, basically. Um, mm. But she gets all quite um, surreal and absurdist. And I think they're, um, you know, I just think they're masterpieces, those four stories. And they're very funny, um, but very strange as well. And interestingly enough, uh, when the book was incredibly widely reviewed, I mean, it was reviewed everywhere, mm. but I think only one critic or reviewer mentioned those stories. And oh. I just feel that reviewers without wanting to get into review culture in yeah. Australia, because that's another issue, just didn't know what to do with them, really. Right. Um, and in a way, I think her publisher wasn't sure either, because they kind of soft-pedalled it as well. But um, those four short stories, but the collection as a whole, I think, are absolutely stunning. Fabulous. So well, perhaps we Thank could you. entice Maria into the book cave. I'll leave you with them. I will <laughs> see if we can get her in, and perhaps she can talk about all the stories in the double that would be great but it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege having the prize-winning poet musician and uh, editor academic um, and delightful guest David McCooey in the book cave thank you thank you so much David in the book cave was recorded at the manse with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.